Hello, everybody. This is Shane with a quick word up top. First off, I want to thank you all for your patience. This took a very long time to make. I know that maybe entailed a broken promise or two along the way. So you have my gratitude. Part of the reason for the delay, I'm not going to lie and tell you it's the whole reason, but part of the reason is that I was writing a book. And the book, just like this podcast, is about the Ryder Cup. It's now done. It's coming out in May, and you can pre-order it at this very moment from your favorite book vendor. Pre-orders are good in the publishing world. I don't quite know why that's the case, but reliable people tell me it's true, so you'd certainly be doing me a favor. The book is called The Cup They Couldn't Lose, and the subtitle is The Long Road to Whistling Straits, which kind of gives you the idea. It's about the 2021 Ryder Cup, but it's also about how we got there. Goes into the history a little, especially the modern history. Goes deep into the tactics. The brilliant and not-so-brilliant people who have succeeded and failed over the years. And how America finally seems to have figured this thing out. Maybe. I think it's very good. Of course, I am biased. I can say, though, that if you enjoy these podcasts and you think, Hey, it's nice that the episodes are free. What a generous guy. Well, it's a pretty safe bet you'll enjoy the book. And I would certainly be grateful to anyone who bought it. I'll include a link in the show description for your convenience. Last thing I'll say, the episode you're about to listen to is the third in a trilogy. It covers 1987, and the first two covered 83 and 85, and I do recommend listening to those first, just for the context. Not necessary, it's up to you, but that is my recommendation. Thank you again for your patience over the last couple months, really and truly, and please enjoy the show. I'm going to leave you all in one thought, and I'm going to leave. I'm a big believer in faith. I have a good feeling about this. That's all I'm going to tell you. We all swore that Sunday night we will be coming back. We will come back. We will beat them in 85. We will beat them in 85. And you wouldn't bet against Patrick Reed following him in. I was very emotional. I started to think about uh, maybe the possibility of winning here uh, today. Uh, a few thoughts uh, for my friend Sevi. This one is for, for him. <laughs> Five of you have already asked me tonight, you know, what's the winning formula? What's the difference year in and year out? And, you know, if I could put my finger on it, would have changed this shit a long time ago. <laughs> this for the Ryder Cup. Oh, and it slipped by the edge. It slipped by the edge, and now things change. Now things change. I live for the Ryder Cup. That's why I'm here. I will deliver a point. I almost hesitate to tell the story I'm about to tell because it's about the Vietnam War, and I am very conscious of not doing the thing where you compare something of such unbelievable magnitude to a sporting event. Obviously, they are not remotely the same. I know that. I promise I know that. But you knew the boat was coming, didn't you? As I was considering the job of trying to get in ahead of the European Ryder Cup team of the 1980s, which is not easy in 2022 for anyone, and particularly for an American with no memory of that time, when I thought of trying to convey that mindset, I couldn't help but think of a time when I suddenly became hyper-aware of a perspective I had never really considered before. And it happened a couple years ago when I was watching the documentary Vietnam by the great director Ken Burns. 
I've consumed a lot of media about the Vietnam War. It's always been interesting to me. And clearly, it's interesting to a lot of Americans because there are endless books and movies on the subject. Some people would say it's the transformational event of our country's modern history. But almost everything I watched and everything I read came from an American perspective. Now, there were a lot of American perspectives. You had pro-war, you had anti-war. Think of the hippies and the protests and all that. You had ambivalence, you had pure horror. You had the soldier's perspective, both in Vietnam and afterward when they came home. But in every case, that perspective was American. And when you think about the North Vietnamese, this is probably embarrassing for me to admit, but there was always a sense of mystery there, a sense of inscrutability. They were this dangerous, shadowy enemy that lurks in the jungle that can bring sudden death, but who you almost never see. If you do hear about a Vietnamese person, it's probably about one of our allies. And even then, the purpose of telling the story is ultimately to talk about an American. One example pertinent to the golf world. Have you ever heard of Colonel Vong Dang Phong of the South Vietnamese Army? If you have, it's likely, or well, certainly, because he became friends with an American Green Beret named Earl Woods, and Earl Woods would give his son Eldrick the same nickname as Colonel Fong. Nickname, of course, Tiger. But even Earl Woods didn't know that his friend Colonel Fong died a year after the fall of Saigon in a communist prison camp. Didn't know it until 1997 when a journalist tracked it down, and that journalist... Tom Callahan of Golf Digest brought it to our attention in the service of telling a very good story about Tiger Woods, an American story. So it blew my mind watching this Ken Burns documentary is that he tracked down the North Vietnamese. And in his film, they are sitting there being interviewed just like Americans. They're equal subjects in the documentary, Viet Cong, Viet Minh soldiers, who previously, in my mind, had been these figures of silent menace. Here they were in all their humanity. And they're telling stories of their friends who died or the loved ones and family they lost and the battles they fought. And they're crying with the memory. They're laughing at the stories of camaraderie. And frankly, it's mind-blowing. And I remember one part in particular. These old Viet Cong soldiers are telling the story of how early on they were getting kicked around by the American military, but slowly they were learning, slowly and surely. And the day comes in 1962 in some skirmish in the Mekong Delta where they finally take down an American helicopter. And the North Vietnamese are telling the story, and you can see the joy on their faces, the sense of triumph, and you can't help, or at least I couldn't help, but forget who I was for a second and be impressed because, wow, what a story. And then you remember that they're killing Americans, and you feel guilty for being impressed, and things spiral, and, well, you get it. This quickly becomes psychologically confusing, to put it mildly. Here's a story about a military defeat where Americans die, and on some level, no matter what your politics are, that stings if you're an American, or it should anyway. But on the other hand, what Ken Burns did there, if you were willing to go along with him, is that he put you in the shoes of the North Vietnamese. He made you, if not empathize with them, at least see things from their perspective. And maybe this is a personal fault of mine, but in that moment, the dueling emotion for me was that, yes, I could see exactly how great that must have been for those North Vietnamese soldiers, but also I'm an American. Talk about a confusing mix of emotions pretty unforgettable viewing experience and obviously one that I'm still thinking about years later because it's tough to glimpse that perspective even briefly and obviously not as tough when we're talking about getting inside the brains of the European golfers in 1987 these things are not equal I will emphasize that again for the historical record you cannot accuse me of false equivocation but I would argue it's still pretty tough when we talk about the Ryder Cup for a modern-day American to understand how much this meant to Europeans, how different things were, 
how imbalanced was the desire of the two teams to win the trophy. If you watch the action Whistling Straits this past fall, you know that imbalance is gone, which is really bad news for the Europeans. The Americans are now just as obsessed and clever and passionate from the captains down to the players to win this thing. And oh, by the way, they happen to have better players. That part, the passion, was not equal in the 80s. What we're looking at in 1987 and the years that came before is how Europe got a strategic leg up on the Americans, how they came to understand the nature of the Ryder Cup in so many ways and set the tables for almost 40 years of domination. And yes, they were smarter and they had vision. And all of that was because they had to be. But you don't get there without the root ingredient of passion because passion is the engine that drives everything. Davis Love III, who is today, I think, the man who is probably most passionate in the whole world about America winning the Ryder Cup, told me recently that when he was coming up as a young man, the Ryder Cup wasn't a career goal, wasn't on his radar. He was born in 1964, grew up during the era of U.S. dominance, and by the time the Ryder Cup got really good and competitive, he was almost 20. His formative years were over, and if he was ever going to really care about the Ryder Cup, it was going to have to come through firsthand experience, which it did. But the Europeans, the English in particular, don't have to learn it. You can be blasé when you've been winning for decades, but when you've been losing, the fire burns. You care more. You're coming from the depths of competitive misery. And that's what I mean by understanding the other side. It's something the Americans failed to do for so many years to their own detriment. But here in 2022, we have the resources to see how and why that European fire burned. So far in this trilogy, we're calling it the Jacqueline Trilogy. We started in 83 when the Europeans were coming off almost 60 years of total competitive misery through 85 when Europe wins at home for the first time ever as Team Europe and for the first time period since 1957. And now, 1987 at Muirfield Village in Ohio, the home course of Jack Nicholas, when Tony Jacqueline and Seve Ballesteros and Nick Faldo and Bernard Langer and the whole European gang comes over to attempt the unthinkable to win on U.S. soil. Never been done in 60 years of Ryder Cup play. The history of how we got here is something I tried to cover in the previous two podcasts. And I think understanding that history is so important to understanding the Ryder Cup in general, which is why I say up front, please listen to those first. But there's a story I didn't tell that I should have. But I just didn't know the story at the time. There's a book I've referenced here before. It's called Us Against Them by Robin McMillan. It's an oral history of the Ryder Cup. It's wonderful. And when I was studying those earlier matches, 83 and 85, well, I did what you might expect and flipped directly to those years. Maybe I read a little bit before, a little bit after, but not the whole book. And because of that, I missed something, foolishly, at the very beginning of the book. And it's something that's just a perfect encapsulation of how low things got for the UK, for the future Team Europe. And it's one of those Ken Burns moments where when I read it, it kind of clicked into place. I was like, this is what they're feeling this is the engine of the passion. This is where they had to come from. Close listeners may remember the name Colin Snape. He was the executive director of the British PGA. And in 1983, he's one of the guys who shocked Tony Jacklin by offering him the Ryder Cup captaincy and setting in motion the whole complete transformation. Well, a year earlier, 1982, Snape is involved in what has to be one of the most desperate hunts for sponsorship in sports history. The European era started in 1979. That was a desperate move in itself, spurred on by Jack Nicklaus in an attempt to restore some competitive balance to the Ryder Cup. 
or maybe restore isn't the right word actually because it implies that it was competitive at some point in the past and it just wasn't. So maybe we'll say he wants to introduce that balance. And the British PGA and the fledgling European Tour are eager to keep this thing going, so they push that change forward. And in 79 and 81, you have these full European Ryder Cups, and guess what? It doesn't amount to anything. Two more American blowouts. You have guys like Tom Weisskopf blowing it off to go hunting. Tom Watson withdraws in 79. And after the 81 blowout in England and Walton Heath, something really bad happens. The Sun Alliance Insurance Company had been sort of the patron saint of the Ryder Cup on the British side since 1973. Their chairman was a friend of the prime minister and was basically giving them his money because he saw it as a kind of patriotic duty. You know, the Ryder Cup is good for Britain, that kind of thing. But apparently that sense of patriotism has its limits because after 81, he said, screw this. Why are we doing this? What's the point? No more. He pulls out. That's when things hit their low point because when that sponsorship goes, nobody else is feeling particularly patriotic either. By the way, just as a side note, you should know this wasn't a problem in America. PJ of America was flush with money. There's no huge concern with them. They can send their players in perpetuity, no problem. But also, the Ryder Cup isn't such a valuable property yet that they're about to foot the bill for the Europeans. So, Colin Snape is the man tasked with the impossible. He's got to round up some money, and he's got to do it fast because in 1983, they've got to send everyone to America. And here's what Snape told McMillan about that particular job. Quote, For months, I went door to door like a brush salesman, trying to sell someone, anyone, the Ryder Cup. I went to a tile company, the Chemical Bank, the American Bank, which had just opened in London. I even approached the company that managed the careers of Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck. Eventually, we had a meeting of the Ryder Cup committee, and I had to report that in six months, the only offer I'd had was 80,000 pounds in cigarette coupons, which could be redeemed for cash. Because it was tobacco, the offer didn't see the light of day, but it shows how bad things were. End quote. Six months, and all he has to show for it is some cigarette coupons that politically he can't even use. The word thankless doesn't quite begin to describe this job, does it? It's gotten so bad that Bernard Gallagher proposes, hey, screw it, let's just pay for ourselves. But then someone calls Snape and says, there's this guy, Raymond McKell, chairman of a company called Bell's Scotch Whiskey, and it might be worth talking to him. Snape is skeptical, as he has every right to be. All of these leads so far have fallen flat. But he doesn't have a lot of other options. In fact, he has none. So what the hell? He gets on a train on a bleak day and heads to Scotland to Perth. Mikkel was a big shot. He sat in a giant boardroom surrounded by his flunkies. And to Snape's surprise, he was basically on board from the start. And his big plan, which was music to Snape's ears, is that he wanted to sponsor the Ryder Cup when it was in Europe, but also when it was in America, because he wanted to expand his market. Don't know if that works, incidentally. As an American, I had never heard of Bell's Scotch Whiskey, but it turns out that it is the best-selling whiskey in the UK. They were acquired by Guinness a few years after this story took place. I've heard of Guinness. But in any case, the number on the table is £300,000 for two Ryder Cups. And this is staggering to Snape because the Sun Alliance deal was £75,000. And so, somehow, on death's door, desperate, he manages to strike gold. And this is just another one of those crazy things that happens in Ryder Cup history to save the event 
when it seems doomed. Remember after World War II, you know, the, the grocer from Portland basically saved the Ryder Cup? It's almost as if there's a little magic there. This thing just won't die. But that's how close it came. Snape's next job was to sell this to the PGA of America. Not easy on paper because you're telling them basically, I need our UK sponsor's name to be all over everything when we come to America. They're not going to love that. But Snape has a trump card, and that trump card is, if you say no, we're screwed, and the Ryder Cup is over. Ball's in your court. As far as trump cards go, not bad. And the PGA of America, again, they don't know what this is going to become. They have no idea. Nobody does. But faced with the choice of killing it or keeping it going, they say, fine. So we talked ad nauseum about the failures on the course for Britain in those early years, the psychological inferiority complex that Europe seems to have developed over time, the dysfunction that becomes endemic to the team until Jacqueline can turn it around. But it's also important, I think, to know the story from the structural side of things because that structure came very close to collapsing. These are the desperate waters Europe swam in in the early 80s and, almost paradoxically, the foundation from which the modern European Ryder Cup team was built. And that foundation includes, in no small part, a sense of grit and determination that you can only gain when you've spent years in metaphorical hell. There's a parallel with what Snape was doing and what the players and captains were trying to do. They're trying to come from nothing. And when things start to go right for once, well, that fosters a pretty strong sense of purpose and a sense of team because you know where it can all go if you stop fighting. You've been there. And to punctuate it all, you've got an enemy in America that's a juggernaut. And nothing motivates quite like a juggernaut. Europe still has that today, by the way. At Whistling Straits, I was following a match on Friday afternoon, the match between DeChambeau and Scheffler against Tyrrell Hatton and John Rahm. And things were already going very poorly for Europe. And I was sort of walking alongside some of their support staff, all wearing those blue shirts with the yellow stars. And they were absorbing the atmosphere, the barbs from the American side, which I thought were really mild, especially if you've been at Hazeltine. You'd think the Wisconsin people were saints. But you could see how mad it made these Europeans, how proud they were, how embattled. And I had that moment where even in the midst of this blowout, this massive victory for the Americans, I realized they're not going to forget this. They come in with a chip on their shoulder about Americans. And I knew for them, when they leave, it was going to be even bigger. Even these media liaison people or the stats guys or whoever they were, they were going to take this with them. Okay, so the bad news for them is I think America also has a chip now. It comes from the same place of being throttled, particularly in those really low moments in 2004, 2006, 2014. Those kind of beatings eventually engender a counter movement. And Europe felt the brunt of that, of course, in Wisconsin. But in 87, America isn't quite there. What Jacqueline does in 83 in Florida is a miracle, even though he loses. What he does in 85 is critical beyond all telling, because when they win at the Belfry, it more or less saves the Ryder Cup. And now here we are in 87, back to America, but with a wind at their backs. This is the chance for something historical. They all know it. It's been a survival act for the Europeans up till now. They've been clambering up to equal footing. But a win at Muirfield Village, and suddenly you've got a paradigm shift. If there was defiance in 83 and 85, if that was Europe saying to the Americans, we're just as good as you and we belong, well, 1987 is a little bit different. This is their chance to go beyond that. This is their chance to say, guess what? We're better.
I want to direct your attention to a quote from Jack Nicholas, 1983 Ryder Cup. He was speaking to his team before the singles matches, and at that point it was all tied 8-8. Eight to eight. And he said to them, quote, I will not be the first captain to blow this thing. Now you guys show me some brass, end quote. What he meant, of course, was he would not be the first American captain to lose at home. And by sheer force of will, he was going to motivate his men to victory. Well, it worked out that way. But if you stick around long enough, the wheel of history has a funny way of coming back to you. In 87, not only is Nicholas returning, but he's at his home course, Mirfield Village in Ohio. Today, they play the memorial there. They did then, too. It's a wonderful course. Difficult course, at least by PGA Tour standards. And for Nicholas, it's always been his stronghold. So he escaped fate in 83, but he was putting an awful lot on the line by not only coming back, but hosting the thing in 87. That distinction that he wanted to avoid of being the first American captain to lose at home, well, it's back on the table. And we've already set up in the last few episodes the history, the narrative, the whole trajectory of how we got here, how we got to this place of near parity after so many years of lopsided matches. We don't want to repeat ourselves. So I think the most interesting question we can ask about 1987 is, what are the Americans doing about it? We saw in 85 with Lee Trevino's captain that the answer was basically nothing. And it's not that the Americans don't see the writing on the wall. We've said before that might be the better story, maybe, if they were so cocky. Uh, this whole European uprising took them by surprise. But even before 1983, even before that Ryder Cup took place, you had people like Nicholas and Ben Crenshaw and others saying, this is going to be hard. Europe is good. And after it was over, they said, look, we're not going to be the favorites in 85. They knew how hard that was going to be, and they weren't really surprised to lose. Which, again, raises the question, okay, you know what's happening. What's the plan? Well, as we know from everything that happened over the next 30 years, 35 years, the plans that existed often weren't good. But it's important to know they did have some ideas this year. ABC still had the rights to the Ryder Cup at that time. They would basically give those rights away for nothing to NBC a couple years later. But for now, they had it. And in tandem with the PGA of America, they had an idea. It was an old idea, something that had been done before. They wanted to go back to having two singles rounds. Now, part of this was just TV. ABC wanted to make the Ryder Cup four days long, more time for people to watch, more ratings, more matches. But on the PGA of America side, surely there was also a nice strategic angle. Part of the reason for the format as it existed, as it still exists, with 16 pairs matches and 12 singles matches, is that it cuts down on America's raw talent advantage. And it's pretty easy to understand. It's, it's simple math. Let's use a stupid example. If you put me up against a PGA Tour golfer in a putting contest and you said, you're each going to putt 100 times from all over the green, I'd be dead. No chance. But if you said we're each taking one putt from 20 feet, well, maybe I can get lucky and make that putt and the Tour Pro misses. Smaller sample size, better chance for the underdog. Plus, having more pairs matches emphasizes strategy. And Europe can take advantage of that too, which again, de-emphasizes the American thoroughbreds who are going to run wild in singles, at least at that time. So that's the proposal on the table from ABC and the PGA of America. Let's expand this to four days, two rounds of singles. It's going to be great. And if you're Tony Jacklin, how do you think that sounds? Not very good, right? And we already know how smart Jacqueline is. And he knows in his competitive heart that there is absolutely no way he can let this happen. So he does the most extreme thing he can do, which he thinks is necessary, and he threatens to resign. No preamble, no negotiations, just, if you do this, I'm gone. 
Well, the PGA of America doesn't care if Tony Jacklin is gone, neither does ABC. But the European Tour and the British PGA, not to mention the European players, they've seen what this guy can do, and that's a huge deal for them. On their side, Jacklin is bursting with leverage, and he's using it here. So they back him. There's a little bit of back and forth between the two sides, and eventually it's Nicholas himself who says, forget it. Ryder Cup stays how it is, and that's how it remains to this day. So Europe wins that fight, but it does show that the Americans are thinking. They're trying to figure out what to do. But on other fronts, they've got these problems that seem fixable, but they just don't fix. For one thing, in 87, they still don't have captain's picks. That's not going to start till 89. And you see that and you think to yourself, why not? It's so clearly a good idea. You had plenty of time to implement it. Maybe back in 83, you should already have been thinking about it. So why doesn't Nicholas have them? And it's going to be a big deal not to have them because once again, the selection process is completely messed up. And ironically, a big part of the problem is that the PGA Tour's purses were exploding. You look at 1960, total purses for the entire tour were $1 million. By 1983, that number had gone to $17 million. And now, just four years later, in 87, it almost doubles to $32 million. Seems like chump change now, but the growth was there, obviously. The issue is that now some of the better players can play fewer tournaments and still make big bucks. But the Ryder Cup point system does not account for that yet. And what happens is that they're still using the old system where if you play a lot of tournaments, you can accumulate a lot of points, and it's not tied to money the way it is today. Obviously, that's going to change in time. To give an example from the current year, if COVID hadn't messed things up, it would have been for Whistling Straits in America that you get two points for every $1,000 earned at a major, fewer points at PGA Tour events. Bottom line, there's a way to identify and reward players who are playing the best at the biggest tournaments. And like many important innovations on the U.S. side, a lot of this stuff, by the way, will come from Paul Azinger when he's captain. And you don't have that yet in 87. And it leads to a big problem. Tom Watson that year finishes second at the U.S. Open, seventh at the Masters in the Open Championship, and 14th at the PGA Championship. This is a guy you obviously want on your team anyway. You missed him big time in 85 when he missed the team by a single stroke at the PGA Championship. Nine and three up to that point in his Ryder Cup career. Last time they played at home, he clinched the winning point. Well, guess what? Once again, Tom Watson doesn't qualify, and there's not a damn thing Nicholas can do about it. That's devastating. You need him. And when we see what eventually happens at Mirfield Village, you can make a really good argument that if he was on the team, the U.S. would have won. But he's not. And you look at that and you say, okay, there's no captain's picks, but maybe the ranking system could have saved Watson. Or reverse that and say, yeah, we know the ranking system is broken, but if Nicholas had captain's picks, it would have been okay. But you can't have both of them broken. By the way, by that time, the world rankings had been instituted. And you look at the rankings from that week, and there are two other guys, Paul Azinger and Corey Pavin, who are among the American top 12 and who also don't make the team. Now, you hear that and you think, well, it's probably easy to figure out why, right? In fact, I don't care how good a researcher you are, it's almost impossible. I thought maybe, like Hal Sutton in 83, when he won a major, it was because they hadn't spent enough time yet on the PGA Tour. I think at one point there was a rule you had to be there a certain number of years, whether it was three or five or something like that. But... I couldn't get this information anywhere about why it's happening again. So I texted Paul Azinger himself, thinking, let's go right to the source. Okay, well, he dictated his text back to me, so it's a little hard to decipher. But what I gather, and what he did later confirm, is that at some point there was a class, yeah, a class, these are his words, held by the PGA of America, 
It's apparently mandatory, but Azinger wasn't aware of it because he was so focused on his golf. And because he missed that class, he didn't qualify for the Ryder Cup, even though he was the PGA Tour Player of the Year in 87. And this might be needless to say, but they did change the rule after that. Wasn't in time to save Azinger. And I tell this story because I don't think I could invent anything that would show so clearly that this is a complete mess. And the result is no Watson, no Azinger, no Paven. Still have no idea why Paven wasn't there. I don't have his phone number, so I couldn't ask him. And instead, you've got guys like Andy Bean or Dan Pohl. And no offense to those guys. But if this Ryder Cup had been held under the current rules, you wouldn't have seen them on that team. Incidentally, there is a little bad luck, too. In the majors that year, a couple unlikely Americans won for the first and only time, including Scott Simpson and Larry Mize. Famously for Mize, that's the year he chipped in to win the Masters. But they've got no Ryder Cup experience. Neither of them have played before. Neither of them will ever play again. And they make the team, and maybe some other guys that you'd like to see there aren't. And that's a little microcosm of things, isn't it? Nicholas has his problems, and he can't solve them. Jacqueline has a big, looming problem. He starts a fight, and he wins the fight. You're starting to see the emergence of a pattern that's going to continue for a very long time in the Ryder Cup, which is Europe making all the right moves, and the U.S. either making the wrong moves or knowing the right moves to make, but being unable to make them because of bureaucracy or tradition or just simple inaction. Speaking of Jacqueline, there's another very interesting sort of off-season battle, and it's one that's been coming for a while, which is, okay, if you're the Europeans, how do you split up Ryder Cup revenue? Not a big deal 10 years ago. There really isn't Ryder Cup revenue to speak of. But after 85, it's starting to seem like maybe there's money to be made here. And for those who have a little imagination, you can start to see this could be an enormous cash cow one day. So at that time, you've got the British PGA and the European Tour. These are the big fish. And the British PGA, who has ruled for decades, remember the European Tour are still kind of the new kids on the block, British PGA says, give us 50%. Call it done. And you can tell from that number, you know, knowing their status, to only ask for 50%, deep down, they probably know they don't deserve it. Yeah, they own the Ryder Cup once upon a time, but now it's a European thing. The players are doing all the work, attracting all the attention. So why should the revenue go to a bunch of club pros in England? Jacqueline, of course, is a touring professional. That's his perspective. And he puts himself at the center of this fight. And unfortunately for him, on the other side is Lord Darby, the head of the British PGA, cousin to Queen Elizabeth, a big shot. So this battle plays out. Compromise they eventually settle on is 60-40 to the European Tour, which is still a really good deal for the British PGA. In fact, today, my understanding is they only get 20%. But Jacqueline wins this argument. However, he does so at some personal cost. Lord Darby approaches him after and says, you've upset me. Which, you know, in, in the understatement style of speaking of the wealthy British people, that's a pretty big deal. And Jacqueline thinks that Lord Darby is the one who kept him from being knighted after that. But again, he wins. He wins the argument. Jacqueline keeps winning. And Nicholas, everywhere he looks, is losing. So let's talk about the teams. We know the Americans don't have Watson. They have a bunch of journeymen. But they also have Ben Crenshaw and Hal Sutton and Tom Kite. They have a rookie named Payne Stewart. Of course, Lanny Watkins, the greatest Ryder Cupper of all. He's there, too. And then there's another guy, and this is going to be his third Ryder Cup, this other guy, and his record at this point is 9-0. and zero. Now, let me give you a hypothetical as we set up who this man is, this mystery man. Imagine today there's a player who emerges who is, let's say, an Iraq War veteran, 
Never played golf as a kid. Literally only took it up at age 21 after getting back from the war. Let's say he breaks 100 the very first time he plays. Within nine months, he breaks 70. Within six years, he's on the PGA Tour. In nine years, he finishes second on the money list. And within 12 years of starting to play the sport, he wins the PGA Championship, then a U.S. Open, then another PGA Championship, wins 10 times on the PGA Tour, and then meets Europe's greatest Ryder Cup star four times in a single cup and wins all four and becomes the first American to go 5-0 and in the current format. You think that hypothetical person might be a big story in 2022? Well, demodernize a few details, sub in the Vietnam War instead of Iraq, because apparently we have a Vietnam theme in this podcast. And that mystery man, that hypothetical person, is a real person. It's Larry Nelson. At age 21, the guy was walking point in his infantry unit in the Vietnam jungle during the Tet Offensive, had never touched a golf club. When he arrived at the war, his regiment had lost 300 men in 90 days. He tells stories of his three months where he came within a hair's breadth of being killed himself. Now imagine predicting that guy walking point in the jungle would become one of the greatest golfers of his generation. Kind of a fluke he ever took up the game. Dave Kindred wrote about him in Golf Digest and turned out that one of his friends in the infantry told him about golf. Here's what Nelson had to say about that. Quote, up to that point, I really thought it was a sissy sport, but the guy that told me about it hadn't shaved for about two weeks and hadn't bathed longer than that, and he had an M16, and I didn't want to tell him what I thought about golf. End quote. Probably a wise move there. So, he kind of intrigued at this point, so he took up the game when he got home, got a cheap membership at Pine Tree Country Club in Georgia, eventually got an assistant job there, and after two years, the members of that club put up some money for him to go to Florida to play the mini-tours. Talked about that period in his life to Guy Yoakum of Golf Digest, and what's amazing is that he didn't even know the rules. At one point in Florida, he hits his ball into a hazard. He starts picking up rocks, sticks, everything. And then he has the audacity to ask his playing partner, who is stunned at what he's seeing, whether he can move a leaf. And apparently the playing partner says, if you pick up that leaf, you'll be lying 12. But Nelson is adamant that he's going to make a career out of this. He's got his wife with him. He wants to start a family. And even though he can't compete at first, he works like crazy, constantly reading Ben Hogan's book, Five Lessons. Tournaments on those mini tours happen on Monday and Tuesday. So from Wednesday to Sunday, he's practicing all day long. By the end of the year, he was sixth on the money list. Already had started to win his first tournaments. As you might guess, a big part of his advantage beyond the work ethic was how he reacted to pressure. Here's what he told Yoakum. Quote, I was a competitive person, but not demonstrative. And the stress of Vietnam really made me rein in my emotions more. In Vietnam, you had to let events sort of bounce off you to keep your sanity. End quote. Now, interestingly, he goes on to say that he wishes he could show more emotion because he thinks that can elevate you. He's seen it with other players, but... He keeps a very calm affect, and that's a big part of why he becomes a winner. As we've already covered, what happens next in his career is remarkable. He becomes really one of the greatest players of his generation. He wins three majors, all kinds of PGA Tour wins. He's got that stellar Ryder Cup record, 9-0, coming into 1987. And he's also just won the PGA Championship in a playoff against his friend, Lanny Watkins. And by the way, just as a side note, one of the all-time stumpers is why this guy, who won a PGA Championship twice never became a Ryder Cup captain. So Nelson, you think, coming into 87, is going to be your linchpin, along with Watkins. Probably they're going to play together because they did so well in 79. 
going 4-0, beating Seve all those times. And these two, you would think, would be the American Fortress. Well, they didn't play together on Friday. And Larry Nelson's experience at this Ryder Cup is going to be miserable. Here's what he said later, quote, There was just no camaraderie, no energy, synergy, whatever in our team. But that's a very important part of the European team. Losing is bad enough, but losing and then having to watch a celebration is even worse. That was a terrible week. Just a terrible week. End quote. Now, maybe I should have attached a spoiler alert there, but I think we already probably know how this one went. And nobody symbolizes how that week in Mirrorfield Village played out like Larry Nelson. Nerves of steel, natural golfer, undefeated coming in, and he goes 0-3-1. Lanny Watkins, who hit the clutchest shot in 83, and about whom Nicholas said he needed a wheelbarrow to carry around his massive you-know-what because they were so big, he goes 1-3 this week. A team with a lot of rookies and untested players and journeymen. For Nelson to go 0-3-1 and Watkins to go 1-3 is not good. Reminds me of 2021 a little bit. European team, in this case, coming in to Whistling Straits as massive underdogs. In their case, they had a lot of old players, some untested players. And what if I told you beforehand, before any of the plays started, that Rory McIlroy was going to go 1-3? Well, you're not going to win, are you? And the problem with Watkins and Nelson is they weren't set up to win. The mystery here is that in the practice rounds, all of these guys pretty much played with people they expected. Nelson and Watkins among them. Great teammates that played together. Come Friday, Nicholas surprises them by splitting them up and pairing them with rookies. You get the theory, kind of, right? You know, I've got these two great players. If they're together, they can only win one match. But, whoa, look at this. If I split them up, they can win two. But so often in Ryder Cups, we see that this doesn't really work. Davis Love actually brought this up to me when I was talking to him about Whistling Straits. We were talking about how Dustin Johnson and Colin Morikawa just had a sense that they were going to be really good together, even though the stats didn't quite back it up. And it reminded him of his days in the Ryder Cup. And he said, quote, I knew I was great with Fred Couples. Side note, a lot of you already know Couples is his very good friend. And he goes on to say, some captains split us up and they thought they'd take their two long drivers and make two good teams. But we're happy together. There's a cliche for this, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. Well, just like Love and Couples, Watkins and Nelson were happy together. But they got split up. They both lost. And by the time Nicholas put them back together on Saturday, the magic was gone. They ran into Sandy Lyle and Bernard Langer twice. They lost twice in unbelievable matches. And if you're looking for the story of the first two days of this Ryder Cup, that's a pretty perfect encapsulation. You have mismanagement, confused players, and then when the ship almost seems like it might be righted, things just don't go your way anyway. But it was just one example. Curtis Strange and Tom Kite were seemingly a great foursomes pair, but not four ball. But Nicholas mystified Strange by putting them together in four ball twice. They lost both times. A lot of stuff going on like that. For the Europeans, things are a little different. They've got nine of their 12 golfers returning from the Belfry in 85, only two rookies. They've got an Irishman coming back, Eamon Darcy, who hasn't played since 81. He's kind of their 12th guy. All the really big guys are back. Woosnam, Faldo. By the way, Faldo's a major champion now. Hadn't been true in 85. Langer, Sandy Lyle, and of course, Seve Ballesteros. And Jacqueline's going to do something interesting here. One of the guys who's not back is Manuel Pinheiro, who is Seve's partner in 85. And so there are a couple ways 
that Jacklin could go. He could pair Seve with someone really good, like Langer or Sandy Lyle, make a kind of super team, which you know we learned over the years, especially from the Americans, is not a great idea. Think of the Tiger Phil disaster from Hal Sutton's captaincy. Another option for Jacklin is he could put Seve with Jose Rivero, another fellow Spaniard his age who was there in 85. He's got experience. Or he could take a page from 83, one of his own pages, when he paired Seve with the young rookie in Paul Way. And there's a rookie on his team, too, 21-year-old Jose Maria Olazabal, who happens also to be Spanish. Well, students of Ryder Cup history already know which path he took here. He, he chose Olathabal. And how did that go? Seve and Olathabal, not too shabby, right? It's not even remotely hyperbole to say that this was the start of the greatest partnership in Ryder Cup history, bar none. For the next four Ryder Cups, they're going to be an unstoppable force, the greatest incarnation of the Spanish Armada, and that's a high bar to clear. Together, they're going to team up in 15 pairs matches, and they will win 12 points from those 15. Those 12 points cumulative are six more than any other pair ever. What's interesting about Olathabal that year is that he came in pretty low on confidence, particularly with the driver. Things got so bad that he decided at one point to just go buy a two-wood from the Mirrorfield Pro Shop. He used it all week. He never even took out his driver. Alternate shot, Seve would take the long holes. He would take the short ones. And obviously, as we see, it worked out quite well. Let me go into a little sidebar here because Seve that week had an American caddy named Nick DePaul. And I always thought that's kind of an interesting dynamic in the Ryder Cup, having an American caddy for the European team against the Americans. And DePaul obviously felt that the tension needed to be addressed. And there's a great moment from before play began. It's retold in the book, How We Won the Ryder Cup, The Caddy Stories by Norman Dable. Hope I'm saying this author's name right. But here's that passage. Quote, Ballesteros was in his seventh year in tandem with the eccentric American caddy, Nick DePaul, who put loyalty above patriotism. Clutching a bottle of the sponsor's Johnny Walker's Golden Liquid, which he dispensed into 12 glasses, the silvery sideburn DePaul made his battle cry, urging his fellow bagmen to, quote, whip these motherfuckers' asses, end quote. Apologies for the language, but there you go. These guys are ready. And by the way, I think probably when they say Johnny Walker in that passage, they mean Bell's Scotch Whiskey. Look, if Raymond McKell is going to pay 300,000 pounds to keep the Ryder Cup alive, we may as well give him his due. And while we're doing sidebars and on the topic of caddies, I ran into a story from after that Ryder Cup. It doesn't really fit anywhere else in this narrative. If I were a better editor, I'd leave it out totally. But it's so good that I just have to shoehorn it in here. So indulge me for a second. It happens to, this story happens to Nick Faldo's caddy. And if you know anything about caddies, they are lunatics. That's not hyperbole. Maybe uh, they're a bit more uniform today, especially in America with all the money. But back then, you wouldn't be stretching too far to call them the craziest people on earth. And Faldo's caddy was named Andy Proger. And after it was all over, they got drunk, of course, and were still pretty drunk when they got to the airport in Chicago. Here's how Proger tells what happened next. And when he mentions Billy Foster, by the way, Foster is Gordon Brand Jr.'s caddy that year. He'll later caddy for Seve. Proger says, quote, We'd been given champagne and beer to drink on the way to Columbus Airport, and we were all very, very drunk. Eventually, we end up at the connecting airport, Chicago, where Billy Foster got the pizzas in, and we ended up having more beer. There was about a mile to walk to connect to our airplane, and that meant going through security. 
Billy decided he was going to walk the wrong way through security. We're all carrying these nice little white holdalls we've been given for the Ryder Cup, and Billy gets called back. I said to one of the guards, yes, you want to be careful because one of us might have a bomb in our bags. No sooner were the words out of my mouth than I was completely surrounded by security men. There was one guy who was particularly aggressive, and I was frog-marched away to a room. Sergio Gomez and Roddy Carr, those are other caddies, tried to convince security that I just had a bit to drink and it was a joke. Security were never going to buy that, though, and the aggressive guy marched me away. I spent the rest of the night in a jail in Chicago where the prison guards took delight in telling me I was going to enjoy myself for the next 18 years. Eventually, they let me out on bail at 4 o'clock in the morning, by which time, of course, I'd miss the flight home. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and if not, thank you for your indulgence. But on the topic of Faldo, there is another partnership Jacqueline has up his sleeve that's kind of a surprise, and it's Faldo and Ian Woosnam. Woosnam had played in 85 with Paul Way, and Faldo had mostly benched himself because he was going through a divorce, wasn't playing well. But don't forget, in 83, he and Langer had been spectacular together. So maybe you think, okay, we'll get a reprise of that pairing. But no, it's going to be Woosnam and Faldo. And on the first tee, on the first day, the fans are laughing at them because Faldo's a big man with broad shoulders and Woosnam is all five foot four and they look a little bit like an odd couple. But the fans won't be laughing for long. First off, because Woosnam can hit the ball about a mile by 87 standards anyway. And second, because you know how we said that Ballesteros and Olathebel are the best Ryder Cup pairing ever? Well, these guys, Woosnam and Faldo, will become the second best ever. They'll play together eight times between 89 and 91 and they'll earn six points in those eight matches. Five wins, two halves, and only one loss. You're starting to get the sense of two different things here. First, once again, everything Tony Jacklin touches is turning to gold. He has an unerring instinct for this partnership business, or very nearly unerring, and it's working again. The second thing is that we're entering into the golden age of European pairs performance. They are so good and so consistent, and it's going to continue into guys like Langer and Montgomery, Darren Clark, Lee Westwood, all the way down to Rose and Stenson, and maybe this will be the only time they play together but at Whistling Straits in the midst of what was otherwise a disaster, I thought I saw a little bit of that same magic in John Rahm and Sergio Garcia. The other big pairing of note from this Ryder Cup is Bernard Langer and Sandy Lyle. It doesn't happen right away. Langer goes out Friday morning with Ken Brown, but Brown isn't playing very well, and Jacqueline will unceremoniously bench him until singles, along with Howard Clark and Sam Torrance, which paves the way for Lyle Langer. Langer, we already know, kind of what sort of person this guy is, but there's a funny story from Sandy Jones, who was Jacqueline's assistant that week. And this, by the way, is from the book Behind the Ryder Cup, The Player Stories, an oral history by Peter Burns and Ed Hodge, worth a read. So at one point on a practice day that week, it looked like rain was coming. So Jones, the assistant, was sent back to the players' rooms to fetch their sweaters. And most of them are, you know, these normal, messy hotel rooms. Sam Torrance in particular is singled out for having an unkempt room. But then Jones goes into Langer's room and it's like walking into a museum. Says it was laid out perfectly. Every outfit in its place. Here's Monday. Here's Tuesday. Here's Wednesday. Just immaculate. And there's another kind of funny story along those same lines. Lyle tells this story from a practice round that week. They're getting yardage into a green and it's coming off a sprinkler head. Lyle's looking at it and he gives Langer the number. He says 179 yards. And Langer looks back at him and asks, is that the green side of the sprinkler or the T side of the sprinkler? As in, sure, you got the number from this 8-inch sprinkler head, but which part of those 8 inches are we measuring from, front or the back? 
And Lyle's, of course, grinning at him, as you'd expect. So is Lyle's caddy because they think it's a joke. But Langer's dead serious. As for Lyle, I am not sure how people think of Sandy Lyle today. I don't think I quite understood how good he was. He was seventh in the world at that point. In another year, he'll become the first British player to win the Masters ever. He's already a major champion. But if you doubted how good he really was, how about this quote from Seve? Quote, Sandy is the greatest God-given talent in history. If everyone in the world is playing their best, Sandy would win. And I'd come second. End quote. Okay. Well. So together, starting afternoon, it's Lyle and Langer, and they are excellent. And they have to be. Because it turns out every match they play is going to be of the absolute highest quality, not just that year, but maybe ever in the Ryder Cup. It's a weird thing where they're playing great, and somehow they're also attracting great opponents. And it's just a sort of dynamic combination. So back to Jacqueline. Every move he makes is working, at least in the first two days. And just like in 83 and 85, he emphasizes a team atmosphere off the course. Which is made easy because, by all accounts, Nicholas is a really great host. There's plenty of comforts available to everyone at the so-called Augusta of the North. Jacqueline himself has a villa with a 25-place table, so there's mandatory team dinners there every night, but everybody's happy to go to them. And this course basically is Nicholas's pride and joy, and it's obviously very important to him that the Europeans are not just happy and comfortable, but exceptionally so. There are no complaints on that front. And just like those prior years, Jacqueline also wants everything first class all the way. You can see how much he means it by the fact that this time the caddies got free air tickets, free hotels, free clothes, free shoes, waterproofs, which are, you know, their rain gear, all of it of the highest caliber. And that's standard practice today. But at the time, that was pretty novel. As for the course, it's always possible to overstate these things. But the Europeans like the fact that High scores typically win the Memorial. They like that there's a win there. They like that it's probably going to be cold. The Americans like the fact that the greens are very fast, which in theory suits them better because the greens on the PGA Tour are always faster than what you find in Europe, which is why, of course, Jacqueline slowed them up in 85 at the Belfry. Renton Laidlaw, who is a British radio guy, he asked Nicholas if he was going to set up the course to help the Americans. Nicholas apparently looked at him shocked. Like, how would you even ask that? Laidlaw didn't quite believe this shock. That said, I have it from Paul Lazinger that when he manipulated the course at Valhalla in 2008, he was told by the PGA of America that he was the first American ever to do that. So, Nicholas's shock may have been actually pretty genuine. There was some trash talking in the lead up here. Payne Stewart, known as very brash to say the least, not always well liked even among his own American peers and certainly not scared to peek his mind, said, we've got the best tour in the world and the best players. Lanny Watkins said, I get sick and tired of reading all that stuff about Ballesteros and Langer being the best. If they're the best, why haven't they won in America in two years? Nicholas was of the impression that losing at the Belfry was a big advantage to the Americans because now they couldn't be taken by surprise. And he said, the other guys are good players, but they can't be talked about in the same breath as R12. And on the other side, maybe a little less trash talking, but when the press asked Jacqueline what was going to happen, he said, oh, we'll win. As he said later, it wasn't a boast. It wasn't a challenge. I wasn't trying to anger the Americans or motivate my own team. It was just what I thought, what I felt. Question, answer, next. A lot of this stuff I try to be careful because we're looking at it all with total hindsight. So when we draw conclusions, we're doing it with the results already in our minds. 
you run the risk of being facile or sort of finding these neat little metaphors that might not actually be true. But I cannot help going back to something Tony Jacklin told me about his own playing days. I think I've said the quote on here before. It sticks with me. He talked about those old British teams having a heck of a lot of bravado and not much confidence. As in, we're going to beat these buggers. All this kind of talk beforehand, but deep down, they knew the Americans were going to win. And you look at these quotes in 87, and it does strike me that the American quotes are full of bravado. We're the best. These guys can't compare to us. Why does everyone think they're so good? And on and on. And if you believe Tony Jacklin and the way he delivered his quote at the time, that seemed to contain a lot of quiet confidence. Take that for what you will. But it's an interesting role reversal. And it's not the first time we're going to see bravado from the Americans, and it won't be the last. I don't think we're going to do a 1989 podcast, at least not for a while, but Raymond Floyd is going to be the American captain in two years, and he will introduce his team in Europe at a group dinner as, quote, the 12 greatest golfers in the world. More bravado. They didn't win then either. By the way, I like Jacqueline's rebuttal to that quote. He said, I guess Seve's 13th. Okay, so Friday morning comes. It is a cold, overcast fall morning. Europe is ripe with confidence. But you get about two hours into the alternate shot session, and it looks like a complete disaster. The U.S. is up and up big in every single match, and it starts right at the top when Curtis Strange, who's not yet a major champion, but he's on the verge of winning two straight U.S. Opens and already the number four player in the world, he teams up with Tom Kite to just jump all over Sam Torrance and Howard Clark. As we mentioned before, this is the first and last time those two will appear in the pair session. Jacqueline asked Torrance's caddy how they were doing at the turn. The answer was bad. Pretty clear that Torrance was having serious struggles with his putter. And along with all his other qualities, Jacqueline, in these situations especially, is ruthless. He did learn from 83 that you don't want to keep guys out the entire time. You have to play them at least once in the pairs. They're, they're probably going to lose for you in the singles. Of course, that lesson would be learned very well, and I think for the final time ever by Mark James in 99 at Brookline. But also, Jacqueline's not going to give guys much rope. That match ends 4-2 and two for the Americans. In the next match, Hal Sutton and Dan Pohl, they take an early lead on Langer and Ken Brown, end up winning 2-1, and one. and guess what? Ken Brown's not going to play again either. That's it for him. There is a very, very short leash on Friday morning for the Europeans. And of course, that particular decision paves the way for Langer and Lyle. Before we get there, Jacqueline's now got a big problem. He's down 2-0, and for a long time, the other two matches also looked really, really bad. Third match was Faldo and Woosnam against Lanny Watkins and Larry Mize. Not Larry Nelson, mind you. This is the beginning of the Nicholas strategy of splitting up his two really strong players, Watkins and Nelson. Seems to be working pretty well early because Watkins and Mize go four up at the turn. Now, I wish I had easy access to these stats. I would like to know how many matches in Ryder Cup history were four up or greater after nine holes and ended up going the other way. I know it's more than once, especially in foursomes, alternate shot. It's a pretty volatile format, but it's got to be pretty rare, I think. Faldo's caddy, Andy Proger, on the 10th hole, he says to him and woos them on the tee, we're going to win this match. Faldo says, you're right. He starts it off. He hits a three iron to three feet on that hole. Watkins hits into the bunker on 12. Then Watkins hits again into the water on 14. He's starting to get nervous, which is not normal for him. And those nerves transfer to Mize because Watkins is supposed to be the steady one. 
Mize hits into the trees on 15. Woosnam hits a spectacular one iron, Ben Hogan style, to reach the par five and two. And suddenly that four hole lead is gone. As you can imagine, when you've blown that kind of lead so quickly, the last three holes aren't going to go very well for the Americans. On 17, Mize hits into the trees again. Watkins goes into the rough. Europe's one up. They win again on 18 to win two up. And Woosnam is absolutely brimming with confidence. He loves the partnership. He tells his caddy it's going to take a really good pair to beat him in Fowler that week. As it turns out, that pair will not emerge. Woosnam was quite right. The final match of that day is Larry Nelson and Payne Stewart against a brand new team. Wonder if they're going to be any good. Sevi Ballesteros, Jose Maria Olafable. But this one, too, the Americans go up two up after five holes. And the way you have to tell these stories in these sessions is one match at a time. But I do urge you to just picture how that looks when Europe is down big in all four matches. Okay, you've got losses in the first two and these huge deficits. This is all happening simultaneously. This one changes faster than the others. And in fact, even when they were down, it was quickly becoming obvious to those watching, including the two Spanish players themselves, that there was something special happening here. A few years ago, Sevi had invited Olathabal to play in a charity match in Spain. Olathabal was only 15 then, so they knew each other from that. Obviously, that had been a very special day for Jose Maria, but Sevi remembered him too because at the beginning of that week in 87, he volunteered to partner him here in America. And their relationship on the course is a little bit like father and son. They were the perfect age for that too, really. Olathabal, he's young enough that he welcomed the guidance but still has enough boldness to be able to live up to Seve because that's a massive presence. You can't be a, a wilting flower uh, in Seve's sort of aura. And Seve, for his part, took on that father role pretty perfectly, guided Jose Maria around the course, showed him the ropes. He was responsible for all the strategy. And even in that first match, you already have the makings of the legends, the legendary pair that they're going to become. Seve hit a 25-foot putt at the eighth hole. Americans struck back at number 11, but Seve hits one of his quintessential chips to within three feet on 15. And all Nelson can say after this match is over is that it's the best he's ever seen Seve play. He says you could see a little bit of the youth in Jose Maria, but Seve more than made up for it. Spanish team wins one up. It's two and two when the session is over. And more importantly, the disaster has been avoided. And it really, really didn't look possible to avoid it. At a certain point in the morning, it felt like the best you could hope for if your Europe was to be down 3-1. to one. Instead, it's tied. And because Jacqueline and Seve are such masters of emotion, they hammered the angle that now they've got the bit between their teeth. America missed an opportunity. Let's punish them. They do. Gordon Brand and Jose Rivero make their debut in the first singles match against Crenshaw and Simpson. Brand hits two 30-plus foot putts on the front nine. They win three and two. Lyle and Langer make their debut. They got in trouble early, but on 16, Sandy Lyle made a 25-foot putt to avoid giving the Americans dormy, and the Americans fell apart. Lost the last two holes and the match. Match three is fouled when Woosnam again. They get a good piece of luck when Woosnam goes for it in two on the number 11. He hits a tree, but somehow it caroms out and stops 12 feet from the hole, and he makes the eagle. Hal Sutton was tough in opposition, but not tough enough. Europe wins 2-1. and one. Which brings us to the final match. Sevi Olathabal, Curtis Strange, Tom Kite. All winners from the morning. 
And this has what I consider to be one of my top five favorite stories of the Ryder Cup ever. And I already told the story in the 83 episode while trying to explain Savi Ballesteros. I couldn't be patient. I couldn't save it. But I'm going to tell it again because it's just so good. Happens on the first hole. Seve was off the green in two. Jose Maria was four feet away in three. Seve wanted Jose Maria to putt out so that he'd have a free chip, but Curtis Strange objected, saying that Jose Maria would be in his through line if he did that. So here's Curtis Strange telling the story of what happened next to Robin McNillan again in that oral history, us against them. Quote, On the first hole of one match in 1987, I wanted to fucking kill him. I'm playing with Kite. We'd had our rules meeting the day before. Some of that's on sportsmanship and courtesy and playing within the rules. Well, to make a long story short, we discussed having a through line, which means the line of your putt past the hole. You don't want people walking around on your through line, as you could be putting on it if you missed the previous putt long. On the first hole, Seve had a chip from just off the green. I had a long putt down the hill and putted it past the hole. Olathobel putted, then wanted to putt out, but I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't do that. You're right on my through line. Seve came charging up. That bother you, he said? That bother you? I said, yes, that does bother me. And so Seve stomped over to his chip and chipped it right into the back of the hole, then walked off the green, pumping his fist at me. And I almost had to applaud him, more power to him. God damn, I was so mad I wanted to kill him. End quote. Now, according to Sergio Gomez, who was Olathobel's caddy that week, it gets even better. He says that Seve was so pissed off that he actually called his shot. He said, don't worry about it, Jose, because I'm going to hold my chip anyway. But interestingly, Gomez also said that Strange was kind of in gamesmanship mode himself. Said something to Gomez, apparently, earlier that hole about the way he was standing while he held a flag. And the way Gomez tells it, and it's very easy to believe him, Strange giving Olathobel grief about being in his through line was more gamesmanship. Kind of his way of saying, I'm not going to take any prisoners. Seve certainly believed it, and he was furious. And Gomez says of that first hole, quote, it marked and soured the whole match. I can tell you there were no gimmies in that match. It backfired on Curtis, though, because his behavior just fired up Seve and Jose Maria even more, end quote. And that shows two elements that we see again and again from the Americans. The first is... Sometimes Seve is so deeply in their heads before anyone ever hits a ball that they're often trying to come out and make some kind of statement, take the fight to him, and they do something wrong, and Seve reacts, and you can't really blame him. Saw it with Azinger in The War by the Shore. You see it several times. And the second thing is, it's not a good idea, ever, because your average golfer is going to play worse when he's thinking about all this stuff. But if he gets Seve angry and into gamesmanship mode, he's just going to play better. Seve hit a 45-foot putt on the 10th to go four up. The Americans fought back a little, to their credit. But in the end, they couldn't do better than a 2 and one loss, which meant that for the first time in the entire history of the Ryder Cup, again, 1927, the Americans had just been swept in the session. Four victories, zero losses for the Europeans, and the score at the end of Friday was 6-2. to two. That's a massive problem for Nicholas, but there was another problem, too, and that was the galleries. They had excellent crowds numbers-wise. They had thousands of people there. This is a far cry from the sparse attendance in Florida four years earlier. Columbus is a terrific sports town. Nicholas's people at the Memorial know their golf. They're sophisticated, and they packed the place. Problem was, they weren't loud, and they weren't really even partisan, perhaps a little too sophisticated, because 
As far as they were concerned, the Europeans were some of the same players they had seen and loved at the Memorial in the past. They liked them almost as much as they liked the Americans. And gee, what a pleasure it is to see all these great players playing golf at our home course, which is fine. It sounds actually like a pretty sane way to live your life. But I want you to keep in mind that two years ago, a lot of these Americans went through hell at the Belfry. The European fans were not neutral. They were not polite. And it was a massive shock to the U.S. system. It made it very hard for them to compete, certainly facilitated the blowout. And what they wanted, the players, more than anything, was for the Europeans to get a little taste of their own medicine. But it wasn't happening. Deep down, American fans still didn't really care about the Ryder Cup. It's still only on TV for a couple hours on Saturday and Sunday. Not at all the first day. They didn't have the same fan culture as the UK with the songs and the chants and just the general sort of group aggression. Really, these were genteel, polite golf fans, and you couldn't train them to be otherwise. Not overnight. But Nicholas tried. And when I say he tried, I mean he literally tried to do it overnight because that Friday he's in a panic kind of starting to look like he is going to be the first American captain to lose at home. Down 6-2, something needs to change. So what does he do? Well, he sends his wife Barbara out to buy tiny little American flags, thousands of them, and it becomes the job of the players' wives to hand them out to the fans, and he gets cheerleaders to come to the course. On Saturday, some of his players, particularly Hal Sutton, who had been incensed at the Belfry, by the way, he called those fans disgraceful. Trying to, his quote was, I think, if the crowds ever get like this in America, I wouldn't hit another golf ball. Well, now he wants them to be exactly like that. And he's playing his part trying to rile them up. And according to Nick Faldo, Sutton is getting pretty upset when it doesn't work, saying things like, you know, is nobody supporting us? What does all of this change, this flag and cheerleader stuff, when Nicholas kind of does this desperate little Friday night maneuver? Well, it changes absolutely nothing. The fans on Saturday are the same exact polite fans they were on Friday, but now they've got little flags to wave around. And maybe some of you listening have been to a Ryder Cup in America. You know what I'm about to talk about, which is that a few European fans can make an awful lot of noise, even in a crowd where they're outnumbered by thousands. I always think of Sunday at Medina, the U.S. fans stunned into total silence, and you had these little pockets of Scottish and English fans singing as loud as they can, not an ounce of self-consciousness, the kind you and I might feel, most of them quite drunk. And it's just the kind of organized display you don't see here. It's not in our DNA. Maybe we're kind of learning it a little bit these days, still catching up, but it's very much in their DNA, and it has been for decades and decades. And they can make a lot of noise. And on Saturday in Muirfield, they even make fun of the Americans. They chant, you've got the flags, we've got the players. Fact is, the only loud partisan fans in Ohio that weekend were cheering for the away team. And, you know, flag this. Flag this moment in history because it never, ever happens again. And I don't think it's ever going to. In 1991, the next American Ryder Cup, they call it the War by the Shore. And as you can tell from that name, the U.S. fans are finally ready to rumble. So 87, this is the last time they'll kind of be hunky-dory and, hey, it's just fun to watch everybody. But for now... There's not a thing Nicholas can do about it. All right, so Saturday morning, we are back to alternate shot. Again, it starts pretty well for the Americans. Strange and Kite are back. They get their second 3-1 win over Rivero and Brand. Hal Sutton and Larry Mize show a ton of courage fighting back for a half point against Faldo and Woosnam by winning the 18th hole. That's the only match Faldo and Woosnam won't win outright all week. 
In the third match, Nicholas finally has Watkins and Nelson playing together again, but they run into a pair on fire in Lyle and Langer. They lose two and one. And then the last match, it's Seve and Jose Maria drawing Crenshaw and Payne Stewart, and the Spanish are in control of the match. All they need to do on 18 is two-putt to win. Seve was up first, five feet away from the hole after a terrific bunker shot by Olathabal. He's got a downhill putt, and he managed to send it five feet past the hole. Here's how Seve told it afterward. Quote, I remember asking him for help to read the putt, him being Olathabal, and he said, be careful, the green is fast, very fast. And I hit it, and it went four or five feet past the hole, and I turned to him and said, that's really fast, isn't it? End quote. Well, yes, it's classic Seve. He couldn't lay up the putt. He couldn't do it. And his caddy, Nick DePaul, apparently slammed the bag and complained to Sergio Gomez, Olathabal's caddy in Spanish, why does he have to be the aggressor? The answer is because he's Seve. But suddenly Olathabal, age 21, is looking at a pretty difficult putt to win the match and the session in America. And he nailed it. Made the putt. Seve wrapped him in a bear hug. And Ken Brown... Their European teammate was just one of the many golfers who was particularly impressed. He called it a turning point in Olathabal's career, that putt. And he remembers thinking, quote, this chap is young, but he's got heart and nerve and is a tigerish competitor. Seems like the kind of guy who could go on to become one of three Spanish men to win the Masters, doesn't it? I have a feeling John Rahm will be the fourth, but that's neither here nor there. So the important thing, Europe wins the session. Now they're up eight and a half to three and a half. And you think if they get a split in the afternoon four ball, that's going to be ten and a half to five and a half. This one's pretty much over. That is considered sort of the insurmountable margin in Ryder Cup golf. We've seen 10 to six comebacks. We've never seen one greater than that. So here we come to four ball. Not a ton of drama in the first two matches. Faldwin Woosnam win in the biggest blowout of the whole cup, five and four against Strange and Kite. And it's worth saying on this one that they birdied the first five holes to go five up and basically end the match. By the time that one's over, Strange and Kite are five under through 14 holes. And it's not bad, but they get waxed. And I mean, that has to be one of the all-time statement wins in a critical session from that first spot. Very, very important for the Europeans because it means now they only have to win one of three and they've split the session. In match two, Andy Bean and Payne Stewart win three and two against Gordon Brand and... Brand's partner is a guy playing for the first time that week, Eamon Darcy, an Irishman. And with that loss, Darcy falls to 0-8-2 lifetime in the Ryder Cup. Not great. So match three comes. Hal Sutton and Mize do it again. This time they win, and they win against Seve and Olathabal, potentially a big one, and it means Europe has to win the last match to split the session. And once again, for the second time that day, it's Lyle and Langer against Watkins and Nelson the team that should be sort of the anchor for the Americans. And this match is spectacular. Two things to know about the match. First is what Tony Jacklin had to say after. He said, quote, I never thought I would live to see the day when I would see golf played like that. Mirfield Village was one of the toughest courses in the world. It was pure, unadulterated inspiration on the part of both teams. It was fantastic, end quote. Second thing to know is that Watkins and Nelson Together, shot an 8-under par, 64, and lost. Langer had a famous chip-in from the bunker on 10, where he hit the ball, then kind of fell back into the sand, legs splayed out. Lyle was a man possessed on the back nine. He made two birdies and an eagle on holes 12 through 15 to give Europe a 3-up lead. 
But Watkins, tough as ever, birdie 16 and 17 to bring it back to one down. And finally, it's near dusk, and the crowd is getting involved. They can kind of sense the moment. Even this polite, genteel crowd, they can't resist the energy that's been building throughout this match, and that is going to culminate here on the 18th. Everyone stripes their drives in that hole. All four players, beautiful shots. Lyle hit a decent approach to about 10 feet, and he said to Langer, get inside of that then. And Langer hits a shot. Nobody could see where it was going in the darkness, but what they did see was Tony Jacklin on the green, jumping up and down. When they got there, Langer's ball was 18 inches from the cup. Watkins and Nelson, what can you do? They can only shake their heads. They pick up the ball, match over. Now it's 10.5 to 5.5 to Europe. Insurmountable, right? There are some Ryder Cup Sundays that fit the narrative of everything that came before. Whistling Straits was a great example. The Americans had a better captain, better players, the home crowd. They dominated the first two days, and they looked unstoppable. So the obvious continuation of that narrative is that they steamrolled the Europeans on Sunday. That's just what happened. Other times, things get flipped on their head. Medina and Brookline are the obvious examples. And 1987, that Sunday in Muirfield, is one of these times. Jacqueline has been... I don't know if brilliant is, is a adequate word it's been beyond brilliant in establishing this five-point lead but it turns out he's going to need every single bit of it and I'll say this too I've read a, about a lot of Ryder Cups in the course of writing the book doing this podcast I'm not saying I know everything because I don't but to me I don't think I've read about a weirder day than Sunday in 1987 up and down the line on and off the course one of the strangest days I think in the history of this event Jacqueline knows that Nicholas has to do what they call loading the boat, which means he's got to put his best players up top and hope to steal some momentum. So he's got a decision to make. Do you match that? Or do you let Nicholas shoot his shots early and then save your best guys for later to clean things up? Well, Jacqueline decides to save his guys to some extent. He puts Woosnam out first, but then it's two of his weaker players in Clark and Torrance. And Seve and Langer aren't going until 9 and 10 in the order. Lyle's not till 7. Faldo plays fourth. So it's kind of a mix. And, you know, today you wouldn't see this anymore. We have reached a point of stalemate in the Ryder Cup singles strategy where if you're down, you want the momentum. So you have to put your best guys out first. And if you're up, you don't want to let the other team seize any momentum because we saw what happened at Brookline, saw what happened at Medina when Love failed to load the boat and he regrets it now. So if you're up, you're also putting your best foot forward. Basically, in both scenarios, you have to load the boat. It takes time to learn that kind of thing, though. And here, Jacqueline, in my opinion, makes a bit of a mistake. It almost costs him everything. But what's odd is that Nicholas ends up not really loading the boat either. In fact, he leads with Andy Bean and Dan Pohl and Larry Mize and Kalkovecchia. It's kind of strange. It's not really a strong start to the lineup. And anytime you have a really bad single session like the Europeans are about to have, there's luck involved. And here we have a couple just extremely odd results. I don't think you can call them anything else. Andy Bean beats Woosnam. Kalkovecchia beats Faldo. That's not what you expect. Bean, who's a really big guy, said afterward about Woosnam, shoot, he's strong. It hurts a little when a little bitty fella outdrives you. But he won for the Americans. Howard Clark wins for Europe, though, and he won on the 18th hole. Flag that fact. Sam Torrance came down to the 18th hole. Against Larry Mize, one down. Mize blew his tee shot, but went up and down out of a bunker for bogey, forcing Torrance 
to two putt for the win. Should have been easy, but Torrance had a downhill 12-footer, and if he missed it, it was going to be an absolute nightmare coming back. He called it terrifying, said his hands were shaking, and actually he seems to pinpoint this moment right here, this putt, as the time when his nerves kind of became shot as a putter. Within a year, he'd go to a belly putter because he just couldn't do it anymore. But amazingly, he made that putt for a half point. But then things get really, really rocky for the Europeans. Payne Stewart beats Ola Thabel. Scott Simpson beats Jose Rivero. Tom Kite beats Sandy Lyle, which, again, you can't really see that coming. Lanny Watkins beats Ken Brown. And suddenly, you've got a situation where this thing is going to come down to three matches. First of those three is Eamon Darcy with his miserable Ryder Cup record against Ben Crenshaw. And Darcy remembers on the first hole a, quote, big fat guy on the tee screaming out, kill him, Ben, kill him. No prisoners today. Maybe a little foreshadowing there of what the Ryder Cup was about to become from a fan's perspective. And on the sixth hole of that match, something really incredible happened. Crenshaw was so mad at three-putting that green that as he was walking off, he banged his putter against a little chestnut on the ground, and the putter head snapped off. Now, you can't replace the putter mid-round. He had to putt the rest of that round with his one iron and various other clubs. And a couple holes later, he had to tell Nicholas what happened. And Nicholas, who's practically irate at this point about how the weekend has gone, is beside himself. But he says, the way things are going, I'm not surprised. Now, you hear some stories, even from Darcy himself, that he didn't realize what had happened. He just thought Crenshaw was using the one iron to slow the ball down on the fast greens. But... According to his caddy, Darcy's caddy, by the eighth hole, they knew exactly what had happened. And how did Darcy react? Well, he was scared. He was frightened. And you can see why. Because at that moment, two things can happen. You can either win, in which case you beat a guy without a putter, which is to be expected. Not much glory there, is there? Or you can lose the match and potentially the entire Ryder Cup to a man without a putter. And if that happens, it will become infamous, and you will become infamous. It is legitimately a terrifying position to be put in. So, Darcy is three up at the turn, but by the 15th hole, it's all square. On the 16th hole of par three, Crenshaw hits it to four feet. Darcy bogeys. He has to concede the hole before he even putts, actually. And now with two holes to play, Crenshaw is one up. The nightmare is unfolding. But on 17, Darcy blasted a drive. Hit a tremendous shot that just cleared the bunker. Rolled to four feet on the approach. He wins the hole with birdie. So it's all square coming to 18. And here Crenshaw hits into the water. Darcy's in the fairway. It feels over, but Darcy puts a second shot in the same exact bunker Crenshaw ends up in. Crenshaw hits his fourth to eight feet, makes the putt for bogey with his one iron. This means that Darcy, who is five feet above the hole, as a putt for par to win the match, and this putt is a doozy. His caddy later said he had to hit it somewhere down the left side, try and get it dead weight, and with luck, it would go in. Well, Darcy made it. It is the first and only win of his Ryder Cup career. It was the last match he ever played in the Ryder Cup, and it was almost absurdly important because the slew of American victories that day was making things very, very interesting. The match right after him, Langer and Nelson, came to 18 all square. At this point, the Americans needed everything they could get, which made it a little bit strange 
Remember, this is a weird day. Here's another bit of weirdness. When they each hit brilliant approaches to about two and a half, three feet on the 18th, and Nelson offered good good for a halved match. Nicholas later said to Nelson he should have made him putt it, and Nelson came back with a rejoinder. Well, I remember you giving Jacqueline a putt on the last hole in 69. I thought we were out here to have a good time. Nicholas didn't say anything. It's a pretty good comeback. But I have to say, in Nicholas's defense, maybe it seems like Nelson is a good counter-argument there. But when Nicholas did it, the U.S. was going to retain the cup no matter what. When Nelson did it, it essentially guaranteed, based on the matches after him, that the U.S. was going to lose. Competitively, I can absolutely see the relief for both men and going good-good. They both played great. They've been matched up a bunch of times that week. But I do wonder... In hindsight, if Nelson had a responsibility to his team to make Langer make his putt. The 10th match of the day was Seve Ballesteros against Curtis Strange. One of those draws that proves the universe has a sense of humor, kind of a sick one. And on the first hole, as if what had happened on the first hole two days ago wasn't enough, Seve holes out from the bunker. Here's what Curtis Strange had to say about that. Quote, I knew I was playing Seve when the draw came out Saturday night. That was fine because I was playing really well. But he chipped in on me on the first hole for the second time in that cup. And you know what he did this time? We were right beside each other, both in a greenside bunker, and he questioned who was away. He started his stuff on the first hole. He knew damn well that he was away, and he knew also that he wanted to go first, but he was just screwing around. And then he made it. End quote. Won't surprise you to know that that rattled Strange a little bit. He went three down after four holes. Fought back to one down by the 13th hole. They had another little fight on the 10th hole about Strange hitting out of turn. Seve's caddy had to talk him out of calling a penalty. And on 17, Seve's still up. Both men are still mad and determined. Seve reaches the green in two, two putts, and clinches the victory two and one. That was the match decider. When Seve went dormy, that was the 14th point, which clinched Europe retaining the cup because they'd won in the Belfry in 85. And when he won his match, that was 14 and a half points for the win. The last match of that day, Hal Sutton and Gordon Brand halved, which made the final margin 15 to 13. Europe wins. Americans won that session seven and a half to four and a half. But remember what a strange day it is. Eight of those matches go to the 18th hole. The U.S. wins the 18th hole one time out of eight. A bunch of times they're in the hazard. Poles there, Crenshaw's there, Mize is there. It was bad for Europe, but it could have been so much worse with a few timely good shots. So many of those matches turned out to be halved matches that the U.S. was leading going into the 18th hole. So in the aftermath, kind of a famous moment, Olathobel danced on the 18th green. You hear about that a lot now. As far as I can tell, nobody really thought it was a big deal at the time. That includes the Americans. They didn't really care. And at the end of the of a weird day with broken putters and near turnarounds and near fight and drives into the water, something even weirder happens at this point. And as far as I can tell, it didn't come out at least fully until John Feinstein's book, The First Major, about the 2016 Ryder Cup at Hazeltine. And what happened is that Nicholas brought all the players to his house and basically yelled at them. Here's the language from The First Major. Feinstein writes, the American team arrived late at the closing ceremony because they were all at Nicholas's house a couple hundred yards away from the 18th green, getting a tongue lashing from their captain. 
again, this is after the loss. This is not motivational. It's just Nicholas yelling because he's mad. He later regretted it, but he did it. And the context here is that one of Nicholas's core beliefs is that because PGA Tour golfers are playing for such large purses and things are getting so competitive in America, there is a philosophy among them that it's good enough just to finish in the top 10. You make your money. Who cares if you win? While in Europe, smaller fields, less money, players are competing to win more often. And it's critical that they win because the paychecks are significantly larger. And so his ultimate theory is that the Americans have lost the knowledge of how to win. They're not as tough as the Europeans under the gun. And this is why they got killed in 85. And it's why they lost this home Ryder cup. Now, is that true? Well, you go back the last five years, that period of time encompasses 20 majors. Americans have won 14 of them. Europe won five. So I'm not sure he's got a real argument there. It kind of sounds like a lot of sour grapes here because look, his nightmare has come true. He's the first captain to lose on American soil. And that story, I think, shows what a unique and complicated figure Jack Nicklaus is. You look at certain things, like the concession we've talked about before. You look at how he had the vision to expand the Ryder Cup to all of Europe to kind of push that through. He's the one who really kickstarted it. And you think, this is a guy who makes all the right moves. Well, here he doesn't. Not on the course, not off the course. And it, it kind of looks bad for him. And it's hard to, to imagine, isn't it, thinking that it's a good idea after this devastating loss to bring all your team members and yell at them and shoo them out. That doesn't seem to me like what a good captain does. And he's certainly not taking any accountability for himself. And years later, people like Curtis Strange remember that he was derogatory to them, both to their faces and to the media. Not really the best look. Although it is also worth mentioning that Payne Stewart is one of the guys he singled out in that meeting. He said, Payne, you make all this money on tour. What have you won? And Payne Stewart took it to heart. He said, I really needed to hear that. And Stewart, of course, went on to win three majors before his tragic death in a plane crash. But all in all, I think despite that, maybe not Nicholas's finest hour. But this also has to be said. There is nobody better to have lost the first American Ryder Cup on home soil than Jack Nicholas. And he admitted as much after. This guy's legacy is so rock solid. One of the two greatest golfers ever in the history of the sport. There is no one on the planet, no matter how big a Ryder Cup fan you are, when you hear Jack Nicklaus's name, who thinks, oh yeah, the guy who lost the Ryder Cup for America in 87. There's at least a dozen other things you think of first. And that might not be true for anyone else. Imagine, I don't know, if Steve Stricker held that distinction. Somebody who never won a major. Or somebody who only won a single major, like Paul Azinger. That might stick. It's not going to stick to Jack Nicholas. Jaime Diaz in 2004 in ESPN, he wrote a piece about how the Ryder Cup captaincy is one of the most difficult jobs in sports, about how nobody really knows it because there's so much to think about. He gets Ben Credshaw on the record basically saying it aged him. It took years off his life when he was captain. And Diaz harkens back to this Nicholas captaincy and he writes, quote, Nicholas made up his mind a long time ago. The Ryder Cup remains primarily a goodwill event, hard fought, but ruled by the spirit of fellowship. He wants to win, but his captain essentially ceded the element that made him such a great player control. And then Nicholas, he quotes Nicholas saying, quote, I don't think the captain's role really affects the result very much. I mean, the guys are going to have to go out and play golf, and whoever plays the best golf usually wins anyway. So that's basically it. End quote. And then Diaz quotes Dave Stockton the American who captained in 91, the war by the shore, and he's got quite a different take. He says his job, he felt, was to set out to pay attention to every detail 
And I thought what he said about Nicholas next was really profound. He said, quote, nobody's a better thinker about the game than Jack. So I respect his view. But all I can say is when Jack lost at Mirfield Village, it shook me to the bones. If they could beat him there, they could beat anyone anywhere. End quote. The loss is a reality. Europe are overjoyed. There's a great moment where Jacqueline and Faldo and Sylvie Ballesteros are hugging on the 17th green when it's all over, tears in their eyes. That night, Jacqueline had one more thing to ask his team, which was to go to the hotel where a thousand European supporters were staying to say thank you. They were kind of hesitant, but when they got there, in Jacqueline's words, the roof exploded off the place. And they were all happy to have gone. Jacqueline's life is about to take a pretty tragic turn. His wife, Vivian, who played such an instrumental role in these Ryder Cups and making them kind of family affairs, had a sudden brain hemorrhage one year later and died. Jacqueline, understandably, went a bit off the rails. He contemplated suicide. He became tabloid fodder in England when he had an affair with a teenager. By 1989, he was married again and didn't particularly want to come back to be captain, but... They basically begged him, and part of his decision is that he wanted his new wife, Astrid, to see what the Ryder Cup was all about. In 89, it was pretty similar to 87 in some ways. Europe got a big lead in pairs. America stages another furious comeback on Sunday. This one comes up just short. It ends in a 14-14 tie. Europe retains the cup. So that was his fourth and final Ryder Cup, but to me, 87 is the end of what I consider the Jacqueline Trilogy the essential sort of part of his career as a captain. We know the story by now. Turn things around completely in 83, still lose, get the absolutely essential home win at the Belfry in 85, and now he's done something nobody could do in 60 years, and it redefines the Ryder Cup permanently. If somebody asks you, why is the Ryder Cup such a great sporting event? There's a lot of answers you can give, but a good simple one is, it's great because the Europeans won in 87. The reverberations are still felt today. We've been reacting and counter-reacting to that victory ever since. When we started out this podcast talking about context and perspective, and you think now again of Colin Snape going around all over the UK trying to find a sponsor, coming up empty-handed. You think of how the British were drubbed for years on end, but the Ryder Cup keeps surviving. And now you have this, this victory on U.S. soil, and I think all you can say for context is that it was surprising that it turned around at all, the Ryder Cup. And the fact that it turned around in about five years is more than astonishing. It is one of the most shocking stories you'll find in sports. From the American perspective, you already sensed coming into 87 that things were different. But Europe had not crossed that final Rubicon. It had never marched into the heart of America and won the cup, hence the bravado, the chest beating beforehand from Nicholas and Watkins and all the others, the sense that it could not happen. And as long as it didn't happen, there was some comfort, some security. The world is spinning on its proper axis because nobody beats America in America. Well, the sun rises over Ohio on Monday morning, and that comfort is gone. As Stockton said later, if they can beat Nicholas and Mirfield, they can beat anybody, anywhere. And over the next 35 years, they will. It all starts here when Tony Jacklin and Sevi Ballesteros and Nick Faldo and Bernard Langer and all the others delivered an emphatic and historical message, a message you cannot fail to hear. And the message is, this is never going to be easy again. 
So if you weren't certain before 87, if you still wondered if this was truly a new era, well, now you know. Thank you, everybody, for listening to that. It's been really great to see how people respond to this podcast. And thank you again for your patience. I wanted to get this one out much sooner, but life is life. Life intervenes. You know how that goes. We'll say again, if you enjoyed this, if you like these episodes, I think you're going to like my book, The Cup They Couldn't Lose. comes out in May, but you can pre-order it now. I hope you will. Link is in the show description. I'd like to get a faster pace with these podcast episodes between now and when the book comes out and over the summer. So if you have any thoughts on a year you'd like to see, I'm all ears. Shane Ryan here. That's H-E-R-E on Twitter. I'm kind of a weirdo and I like the blowouts for some reason. So I'm thinking maybe 2008 Valhalla might be a good one next. But as of now, undecided. Anyhow, much appreciated. And I will see you next time. Goodbye.